All right. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Luke chapter 22. But if you would, please go ahead and find 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1. Mark those passages. I've got a lot of ground to cover today. I'm going to be quoting a lot of scripture in order that I can get everything in this particular message. Luke chapter 22, we're just going to read one verse. We will come back to this verse. There will be a lot of foundation to be laid before we get to it. But Luke 22 and verse 54, the Bible in reference to Jesus Christ says, Then took they him and led him and brought him unto the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. The title of the message is Leading Christ into Captivity. Leading Christ into Captivity. Here is a subject that we never consider, the captivity of Jesus Christ. One immediately will answer and object and say, but it's impossible to lead the sovereign, omnipotent, almighty God into captivity. Yet the truth of the matter is he was led into captivity And he is still being led into captivity, not only by his enemies, but by his friends as well. And I'll make this clearer just shortly. But when we think of captivity, we normally recoil at the thought of captivity because we understand that for us, it's not only a loss of life, a loss of livelihood, but a loss of liberty as well. In captivity, we are made to serve. In captivity... We do that which is demanded of us, not that which we desire. When we think of captivity, one of the first thoughts that comes to our mind is the captivity of Israel in Egypt. In fact, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 13, And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. Now, the word serve in Exodus 1 and verse 13 is the Hebrew word abad. Now I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to give you the definition of the word. It literally means to cause to serve, to labor, to be subject, to be compelled to work for another and to serve another by hard labor. So I want you to remember this word abad and I want you to remember this definition because I'm going to come back to that just shortly. So the truth of the matter is this. When you think about captivity, all peoples, all nations, all ethnic groups have been captive or enslaved at one time or the other. It's not just black folks that have been enslaved, white folks, red folks. Every nation, every people have been enslaved and held captive at one time or the other. I also want you to note that it is God's judgment upon His people for their disobedience oftentimes that brings captivity and enslavement. If you would hold Luke 22 very quickly, but look in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And look if you would beginning there with verse 45. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And notice, please, beginning there with verse 45. Look what God says. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee, and they shall pursue thee and overtake thee till thou be destroyed. 
because thou hearkenest not unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee. And they shall be upon thee for a sign and for a wonder and upon thy seed forever. Now watch carefully. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, therefore thou shalt serve thine enemies which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in one of all things, and he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. So here's what God is saying. When God sends captivity as a judgment, we are going to learn the difference between the service of God and the service of man. In captivity, we're going to discover who is far more gracious, who is far more kind, generous, giving, and merciful, God or man. The captivity of man will make us see clearly and understand that the service of God is a blessing and not something to be chafed at at all. So we must also, by way of introduction, understand that there are different kinds of captivity. Usually, when we think of captivity, we immediately think of physical captivity. However, there is indeed a mental, an emotional, an economic, and a spiritual captivity. Uh, For instance, Proverbs 22 and verse 7, the Bible says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. So the man that borrows, the man that is in debt, is a slave. The word servant there literally means slave, bond slave, or manservant. So borrowing money and being in debt is economic slavery because once you borrow money, once you're in debt, you're no longer working for yourself. You're working for the other man until you pay that debt off. And so the word slavery is used there. Of course, we also understand that there is a captivity of sin. Our Lord said in John 8 and verse 34, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committed sin is the servant of sin. And the Apostle Paul said it like this in Romans 6 and verse 16, Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now in each of those passages, and many other passages, the Greek word is the word doulos, which literally means slave, bond slave. So our Lord said, whosoever committed sin is the slave of sin. And Paul said, to whomever you yield your body as a servant, you are that slave. The interesting thing to me is I've heard men boast all of my life concerning their sins. Well, I can just quit anytime I want to. Isn't it amazing though, those who say that they can quit anytime they want to, never want to quit. (laughs) I heard one man say, He said, quitting smoking is easy. I've already quit a thousand times. (laughs) Well, obviously it was not easy. So, uh, you know, but I'm just simply saying, you know, we we always say we can stop something, but usually we can't because there is a servitude to our habits, to our sins. Now, I don't have to dwell on the captivity of the mind. The Bible tells us very plainly that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So basically, it's our mind that controls our lives. And if we think wickedly and wrongly, obviously, we're going to act wickedly and wrongly. Now, 
Before I go into really the part of the message I want to get to, let me take you back to the objection that I mentioned at the very beginning of this message. Someone says, but it is impossible to lead the sovereign, omnipotent God of heaven and earth into captivity. Really? Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. And I want you to look, please, at verse 24. I want you to see what God said to His people. Look, if you would, Isaiah, chapter 43, and note, if you would, please, verse 24. And now he is talking to Israel, and look what he says. Thou hast brought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. Now, interestingly, God said to his people, Thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Would you like to take a guess at why I said earlier, I want you to remember the Hebrew word abad, and that I wanted you to remember the definition. It means to force to serve, to make to serve, to do hard labor. And that's because it is the same word that is used here in Isaiah 43 and verse 24. God said, you forced me to serve with your sins. Now, the point I'm trying to make right here is this. We do not understand the implications of a covenantal relationship. You see, the truth of the matter is Israel was just simply basically in an external covenant with God. And yet they did not obey God, but since he was covenantally united to them, when they sinned, they made him to serve with their sins as well. Now, let me point this out. That which is true in the Old Testament is equally true in the New Testament. And it is made even clearer. So I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And let's begin reading there with verse 15. Watch this passage very carefully. And keep in mind that God said, Thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. So look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 15. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Now let me just stop right there. You remember that He is our head, we are His body. So He says, Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know you not that he who is joined to a harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. Now look. But he that is joined in the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. What you have of God, you're not your own. For you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit which are God's. Now, here's the whole simple truth. Jesus Christ is our head. We are his body. When we sin, we unite Jesus Christ to that sin. That's why he said, but he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Very clear. Very understandable. So, since Jesus Christ is our head and we're his body, when we sin, we make him to serve with our sins. 
So sin is no laughing matter. Sin is no joke. Sin then makes a holy, righteous, and just God to serve with our sins. And no wonder then we are chastened and we're judged. And we never think of the implication of a covenantal relationship. Now, I'm endeavoring to lay this foundation because I want you to see another type of captivity. I want you to see a political and a governmental captivity of Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, we believe and we confess that Jesus Christ is God. We believe and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You remember the word Lord? It's the Greek word kurios, which means boss, owner, master, sovereign. We also confess and acknowledge the truth of Matthew 28, verse 18, where Jesus Christ said, All power or all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. So God the Father raised Jesus Christ up from the dead. God the Father made him Lord. And God the Father gave him all power and all authority. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. I want to just emphasize this very clearly. Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. And let's begin reading there with verse 15. And we'll read through verse 23. Watch carefully. Ephesians 1 verse 15. Wherefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Now pay close attention to this. And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body." the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So here's a clear passage. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We are his body. Now if you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And let's begin reading there with verse 15. And we'll read through verse 19. Colossians 1 verse 15. We're talking about Jesus Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist or have their being. And He that is Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So we must understand this truth. It's very simple. And that is that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. He has absolute jurisdiction. He has absolute and total authority. No man, no ruler, politician, government or entity has any right to rule, run, manage or direct the church of Jesus Christ. It is his church. He is declared in his word in the way which he is to be worshipped, praised, and adored. He's declared in his word how we should act in church. He has also declared in his word how we should live outside of the church. In other words, he is king. He is head. He is Lord of lords and God of gods. Now, here's another truth that's very simple. Jesus Christ is not just simply head of the church. He is head of everything. Because he is God. He is absolutely sovereign. He has all power and he has all authority. And no one, no organization, no institution can exist apart from him. So let me make this very clear. Any authority, any power, any jurisdiction that anyone, any individual has, or any organization has, or any institution has is delegated by him. That means that jurisdiction, that authority is limited. He gave that authority. Let me just say this another way. God has not abdicated his throne. God has not ceased ruling. God has not thrown aside his power, his authority, his jurisdiction, and he has not turned his church and he has not turned his world over to a handful of petty bureaucrats or billionaires to do with as they please. No, God is still on the throne and he is still in charge. Now I want you to listen carefully. In Proverbs chapter 8, Jesus Christ has wisdom personified. And here's what he says in verses 15 and 16. By me, kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles and judges of the earth. In other words, it's only by him that judges, princes, and kings rule. And when you get to Psalm 75, verses 5 through 7, it cannot be any plainer. The word of God says there, lift not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck. Listen, for promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one, and he setteth up another. God is the judge. He putteth down one, and he setteth up another. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Sennacherib, Haman, and a host of others learn this truth the hard way. God is the judge. God is sovereign. He puts up and he takes down as he pleases. Understand this principle. Delegated a power, delegated power, delegated authority, delegated jurisdiction cannot usurp, overrule, override, or overthrow absolute power, authority, and jurisdiction. So God alone has unlimited authority. God alone has unlimited power. God alone has unlimited jurisdiction. 
All power outside of God, all authority outside of God is limited, it is delegated, and it is finite. Now here's a principle that I've taught for years. If you've never really grasped this, please do so now because in light of what is happening and what will probably happen, you need to know this and you need to have it in your heart. And that is simply this. God has created only three institutions. He created the family, which is a ministry of education. He created the church, which is a ministry of grace. And he created the civil government, which is a ministry of justice. And each one of these institutions, he gave a limited sphere of authority. Each institution is to function in its proper sphere. And once it leaves that proper sphere, it does not carry its authority with it. In other words, once it steps outside of its God-ordained jurisdiction, God-appointed authority, it does not carry that authority with it. So civil government has no authority to dictate to families how they're to raise their children. Civil government has absolutely no authority to dictate to the church as to when or how or where it can meet, what it can do or what it cannot do or what it can worship or what it cannot worship. Civil government has no authority to tell the church on how many may attend, when they can attend, and how they can attend. And it has no authority to tell the church whether it can sing or not sing, carry a Bible or not carry a Bible. All I'm simply saying is the power of the civil government is limited to that of justice according to the word of God. Now, we're talking about sphere authority. Likewise, the church cannot look at the civil government and say, you cannot execute that murderer. Yes, they can. For God gave the civil government the sword and said, use this sword. I can't say that. I can't say to the civil government, you can't put someone to death. Yes, they can. Each sphere has its authority, but only in its own sphere. So, I might be a husband and I might be a father, but I can't go to Gary's house and tell him how to run his house, tell his wife what to do and tell his daughter what to do. I have no authority to do that. I can't tell Steve how to control Lorraine. Wouldn't do any good anyhow, would it, Steve? <laughs> Not decent. But, but you, you, you see what I'm saying. I can't go over and say, well, now, Effie, you need to raise your children this way. No, 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 no. I might be a husband, I might be a father, but it's only in my sphere. It's not when I leave my sphere, I might give you some counsel. I might tell you some biblical principles, but I can't tell you how to run your house. And I can't, even as a pastor, tell other pastors how to run their churches. I can't go to the church and say, you must do this and you must not do this. No, no, no. That's not my sphere of authority. My sphere of authority is right where I am. And if I leave that sphere of authority, I do not carry that authority with me. That is very simple. That is very clear. So every institution that God ordained has limited authority, delegated authority within its proper sphere. And when it leaves that sphere, it leaves its authority. Now, with this in mind, when you look at Luke chapter 22 and 23, we're going to see Jesus Christ led into captivity. Our Lord in this passage was betrayed by one who had been with him for three years. 
He was betrayed by Judas, and he was betrayed with a token of affection, a kiss. And he was betrayed in a place where he most often resorted. And he usually resorted there for prayer. Now, how in the world did Judas know where he was? In John 18 and verse 2, the Bible says this, And Judas, who also betrayed him, knew the place for Jesus oftentimes thither resorted there with his disciples. In other words, he knew where Jesus went. He knew his habits. He knew when he was praying, when he was not praying. He knew where he prayed. And so he knew the place. Now, I know that Judas was an enemy of Jesus Christ. I know that he pretended to be a follower. I know that he was not a real friend of Jesus Christ. And when he came to betray our Lord, our Lord did not call him a personal friend. Without me going into it, in Matthew 26 and verse 50, when, our, when Judas came to betray our Lord, our Lord said to him, Friend, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss. And the word friend is the Greek word hetaros. It's not from phileo, I love, or filial, for our English word for family. No, no, no. It's hetaros, which means acquaintance. Someone that you know. In fact, hetairai in the feminine was used of the prostitutes in Bible times. They were strangers to the family, but they were acquaintances to some individuals. And so basically what our Lord did in calling Judas Hataras, he was calling him an acquaintance, even a prostitute, because his love was not real and neither was it genuine. So Judas has come now to betray Christ into the hands of, of his enemies. Now, I want you to look at verse 54. So let's say Jesus Christ has already been captured. Uh, notice, if you would, verse 54. Then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. Now, here's a good question Why was he led to the house of the high priest? And the answer is because they were there anxiously awaiting his arrest. They had sent to have our Lord arrested. Without you turning there in John 18 and verse 3, here's what the Bible says. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So they had sent Judas. They had sent a band of men and officers to arrest him. Once he was arrested, he's now taken to the house of the high priest. So here's another question. Why was he led to the house of the high priest? Now, you could properly answer that the high priest was the leading religious leader of his day. And that certainly would be correct. But here's a secondary observation. Uh, this house into which Jesus Christ was led was probably not the high priest's private abode. It was probably a much larger building. 
How can I say that? Well, in Matthew 26 and verse 57, listen carefully. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. How many men were in the Sanhedrin? Seventy. So wherever the high priest was, probably the 70 were there, not counting the officers and the other men who went to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. This house may have been a special place or a designated place and not necessarily his private abode. So it had to be large enough to accompany a large number of people. If you look at Luke 22, beginning in verse 63, here's what happened during the night. Look at it. And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. So he is taken now to the high priest. He's taken to this house. And here he is interrogated. Here he is mocked. Here he is ridiculed. Here he is blasphemed. Let me give you a quick quote by Calvin. He said on Matthew 26 and verse 57, But they who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas. Though the Jews had been deprived of what is called a higher jurisdiction, that is the ability to execute someone, there still lingered among them some vestiges of that judicial authority which the law confers on the high priest. So that while they had lost the absolute authority, they retained the power of administering moderate correction. This is the reason why Christ is brought before the high priest to be interrogated. Not that a final sentence would be pronounced upon him by this tribunal. So Jesus Christ is brought then to the house where all of these scribes and elders are. Probably the whole Sanhedrin is there. The officers that went to arrest him are there. Everybody's there. During the night, he's interrogated, he's mocked, he's ridiculed. There's no rest, no respect given to him. Now, look what happens next. Look, if you would, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 66. Watch. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together. In other words, some did not stay all night. Some did. And led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. So now he's led not just to the high priest's house, but now he's led into their council. Now, the council was already fixed. The council had already determined its outcome. It was here that our Lord was officially religiously condemned as an imposter and as a blasphemer. The council was not interested in the truth. The council was not interested in Jesus Christ. The council was not even interested in the people. Well, what were they interested in? 
the answer is they were interested in preserving their own power and their own position. And that was it. How can I say that? Well, whole Luke chapter 23, but look in your Bibles to John 11. And let's read verses 47 and 48. John 11, verse 47. Watch. John 11, verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. We won't have any power. We won't have any party. I mean, we won't be rulers anymore. (laughs) Our position will be gone. Our place will be gone. We will not be needed. We've got to do something to this man. Because one of two things, either everybody's going to believe on him and leave us, and if we don't do something, the Romans are going to come and take it away. So we'll lose it one way or the other. So we must then take care of Jesus Christ. We must get him out of the way. So, you see, the truth of the matter is this, that many denominations, churches, and seminaries condemn Jesus Christ in one way or the other. In fact... Oftentimes, Jesus Christ does not fit into their doctrinal understanding. I just read within the last two weeks of a southern seminary that is requiring all students that attend this seminary to sign a pledge, to sign an oath stating that they will obey anything the civil government tells them to do. Really? How can that be biblical? How can you do that? Some people just simply do not understand sphere authority, nor do they understand that God only created three institutions. But here's what happened. They led him to the high priest. He was interrogated. He was mocked and ridiculed. They took him to the council. And look what the council does next. Look in chapter 23 and verse 1. Here it is. And the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. So he's going from the house of the high priest to the council and now to Pilate. The religious leaders, the religious establishment turned Jesus Christ over to the civil authorities. Religious iniquity had now only to lean on civil government to finish the wickedness which it itself had taken the lead in. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. Now, I want you to turn to John 19. Turn over just a few pages, John 19. And look, if you would, at verses 6 and 7. Jesus Christ is standing before Pilate. And look at what the chief priests say. John 19, verse 6. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die. 
because he made himself the son of God. Now, wait a minute. Why did they not look at Pilate and say, thank you. We will take him and put him to death. Well, now, I believe there's many answers to that. And I'm not going to go into that right now. Of course, the prophecy was that he was to be crucified. He was to be hanged and numbered with the transgressors. But what they were saying is this. We don't have the official authority to crucify him. Now, it is true that under the Roman rule, they lost their power to execute officially. But that surely didn't stop them from stoning Stephen to death in Acts chapter 7. You see, here it is. What they wanted was our Lord officially condemned by the Roman rulers. They wanted them to do the dirty work. They delivered him over to them so that they could crucify him. Now, look if you would, John 19, verses 10 and 11. Of course, our Lord stood silent before Pilate. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Pilate said, I've got the power. Our Lord said, No. The only thing you got is what you were given. Can you see this? Here is a limited, delegated, finite, authoritarian figure elevating himself over an absolutely sovereign, omnipotent God who has total authority and jurisdiction. Wow. I want you to understand something. There's a verse in the Bible that describes this very well. The wise man said, I have seen servants riding upon horses and princes walking. In other words, everything's turned upside down. And now you have this picture of it being turned upside down as well. So the whole point of this message is this. The powers that were delegated by our Lord... The jurisdictions that were delegated by our Lord, the authority that was delegated by our Lord, were all used to condemn Him. Listen, and in condemning Him, they're establishing themselves as the higher power. We're over you. Wow. I want you to listen as preachers, denominational leaders, religious charlatans today, are all crying out that we must obey, we must obey. We must all be vaccinated. We must all get vaccine passports. We must do everything that comes down the pike. I just heard this this morning. I did not hear it myself. But the brother who told me, he said, I had to listen to it twice. He said, because I could not believe it. But a leading pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, 
when asked about the fetal cells in the vaccination, said he didn't see anything wrong with it because Jesus Christ gave himself as a sacrifice. He said, I heard him say that twice. In other words, it didn't matter that aborted fetal cells were in the vaccine to him. It was just a matter of sacrifice. They were sacrificing themselves like this so that we could have this vaccination. All I'm trying to point out is this. You look and think about recently even the churches that were shut down by the civil government, not only contrary to the Constitution of the United States, but contrary to the Bible. Civil government has absolutely no authority over the church unless the church is violating the law of God. Civil government may investigate a murder inside the church building, just like it can investigate a murder outside the church building. But unless the church is violating the law of God, it has absolutely no authority and no jurisdiction over the church. Look at what is happening in Canada. If you have not been keeping up with it, you need to learn what is happening. Pastors are being arrested, churches are closed and walled off. In one instance, two fences have been built around the one church to stop them from meeting. The pastor and the people had to go to a secret location in order to hold church. And when one church continued, 200 officers were called out to circle the building to stop them from going in and using their church building. And I just saw last night where now the Canadian government, contrary to the Charter of Rights, are saying that they have, any, they have every right to go into a church building even while a service is going on and shut it down and lock it down. All I'm trying to point out is this. It will not be long before it's here. If we don't understand the principle that I am enunciating today, in our politically correct Marxist and socialistic society, the state, the civil government is being touted as God, and our religious leaders are delivering the church of Jesus Christ bound into captivity to the state. And in doing so, they're delivering Jesus Christ into captivity because Jesus Christ is the head and we are his body. You cannot deliver the body without delivering the head. Wherever the body goes, the head goes as well. Now, I want to remind you of some historical truth. I want you to listen very carefully. All of us know about the persecution in the Roman Empire. Many Christians were put to death in the Roman Empire. But may I point out the fact that the Christians of the Roman Empire that were put to death were not put to death because they were simply Christians. In the Roman Empire, you could believe whatever you wanted to believe. If you wanted to believe in Aphrodite, have at it. If you wanted to worship Baal, go for it. If you wanted to uh, uh, worship Ashtoreth, fine. If you wanted to worship Jesus Christ, no problem. All you had to do was once a year swear by the genius of Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. And the Christians refused to say Caesar is Lord because Jesus Christ is Lord. And consequently they were put to death as being 
traitors and treasonous to the Roman Empire and to the emperor cult. Now, I don't know if you remember this or not, but the very first baptismal formula that you find in the Bible and in history consists of three Greek words. And that formula was this, Jesus es sin curion, Jesus is Lord. You see, when you got baptized in the first century and you said Jesus is Lord, <laughs> that put you on the hit list of the Roman Empire. You were hunted down. Your goods were confiscated. Your house was burned to the ground. You were either thrown into a dungeon or you were just executed. It was that simple. In other words, it cost something to be a Christian in the first century. And it cost something to confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. It may be coming to that again. You see, Augustus Caesar followed Julius Caesar. What we don't understand is the emperor cult or the Caesar cult. You cannot understand the Caesar cult without understanding that Caesar claimed to be God. You cannot understand the Roman Empire without understanding that the Roman Empire claimed to be a godlike empire based upon the Caesars. Augustus Caesar, who followed Julius Caesar, had his image stamped on his coinage. You remember when they tempted Jesus, he said, show me a coin. And they gave him a coin. Whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. Well, Augustus Caesar had his image stamped on his coin, and under his image were these words, Caesar Divi Filius, which translated is Son of God, the Son of the Eternal Caesar. Huh. It meant that he was claiming to be God. Here is an inscription found in Perine, which is modern-day Turkey, referring to Caesar Augustus, and here is the inscription. The birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. Guess what? The word gospel is euangelion in the Greek. The same as it is in the Bible. But now we're talking about the gospel of Caesar, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen to this. Here's an inscription that was on a government building dating from 6 B.C., and it'll give you a better light into the Caesar worship. Here's the inscription. The most divine Caesar. That should tell you something right there. The most divine Caesar. We should consider equal to the beginning of all things. Now we're ascribing eternality to him. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us, and our descendants as Savior. 
and has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. Wow. I hope now you're beginning to understand that the Roman Empire was built upon the godhood of the Caesars. So for Rome, the goal of any true morality and piety was the subordination of all things to the state. The religious pious man was the one who recognized at every point the life and centrality of the state. Here's a quote by Rush Dooney. Listen to what he said. The framework for the religious and familial acts of piety was Rome itself. The central and most sacred community, Rome, strictly controlled all rights of corporations, hmm, assembly, religious meetings, clubs, and street gatherings, and it brooked no possible rivalry to its centrality. The state alone could organize, short of conspiracy, the citizens could not. On this ground alone, the highly organized Christian church was an offense and an affront to the state and an illegal organization readily suspected of conspiracy. That's why in the Roman Empire, the church of Jesus Christ was considered illegal because it was in competition with the state. It was in competition with Caesar, they interpreted and they thought, and therefore it must be brought under subjection to Caesar. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts chapter 4. I want you to see something. Please keep in mind, please keep in mind what I have been telling you about the Roman Empire. Please keep in mind that Caesar is claiming to be God. The Roman Empire is indeed the state, the total authority. Here in Acts chapter 4, Peter is preaching. He's being questioned because of the healing of a man by the high priest and his kindred. And he responds, look in verse, well, let's start with verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of people, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you hold. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now you cannot understand verse 12 without understanding this truth. Peter is declaring war upon the Roman Empire and upon the Caesars. Because in 14 BC, there was a bright star that shone and Caesar proclaimed himself Lord and sent Throughout his empire, this statement, there is none other name 
given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Augustus Caesar. And Peter took that and put it here in Acts 4 and verse 12 and said the name under which we must be saved is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He was denying the emperor cult. He was denying that the state is God. He is saying Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the boss. He's the owner. He's the master. He's a sovereign. And let me tell you something. Anything less than that is leading Jesus Christ into captivity. Jesus Christ is God. Now let me make some applications. I want you to listen carefully. The first one is this. We cannot and we must not lead or deliver our Lord Jesus Christ and His Word over to the state, the civil government, or religious institutions in order to denounce, deny, or denigrate His authority and jurisdiction. He is Lord and He is Lord alone. Let me make this exceedingly clear. Our Lord is sovereign and He does not have a co-chair. There is no one with Him. He is sovereign. And submit the church of Jesus Christ to the state, to the civil government, is to submit Jesus Christ to the state and civil government since He is the head. Incorporation is another idea. But that is also submitting Jesus Christ to the state because the state then becomes the head of the church instead of Jesus Christ. The second application is this. The war of the first century has become the war of this century. The war in the first century revolved around this question. Who is Lord? Christ or Caesar? And that is the question that is the heart of the issue today. Look at what hap- is happening in America. Look at what is happening in Canada. Ask yourself this question. Who is Lord, Christ or Caesar? I must point out, in the first century, when you confessed that Jesus Christ was Lord, you needed to prepare yourself. Because you will either be incarcerated, executed, or you'd end up losing everything you had for saying and standing and believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because the state would brook no rivals. You know, our Lord said something that's very, very true. He asked a question in Luke 6 and verse 46, and He said this, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say unto you? Our lives... Our lips, our actions will be very telling because they will reveal who we genuinely confess to be Lord. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the sovereign. He is the head of the church and we must bow to Him and worship Him and obey Him regardless regardless of the dictates of the state, regardless of what man says, regardless of what government says, Jesus Christ 
rules and reigns supremely. He is God. That is why he said, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. We cannot allow the sovereign God of heaven and earth to be subjected to some little finite, limited, delegated authority who wishes to play God. Jesus Christ alone is God. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we bow to Thee. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You, Father, that Thou hast given us Your so great salvation in Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to honor Him, for Thou didst say, He that honors the Son honors the Father. And he that honors not the Son honors not the Father. Help us, Father, to bow before Thee and always remember and prepare our hearts and minds and lives to confess and acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ alone, in whose name we pray, amen.